Wasn't quite sure how to get up there. Hey, good morning. It's really great to be with you guys. Uh, been here a couple of times, but it's been several years and really sweet to, to be here this morning and uh, enjoy worship with you and just, just to be invited into your fellowship. Uh, this is a really special time for me, so thank you for having me. I do have uh, my two girls, Annie and Nisa, here on the second row, and uh, I am married uh, to one woman, and we've got two more kids. Uh, Jennifer um, has been my bride for 20 years. We met at the University of Tennessee through the ministry of RUF, actually. And then I've got a 19-year-old son uh, looking to head off to college in August, uh, to Wheaton College. And then I've got a uh, 16-year-old son who's a sophomore in high school, and we just pray that he will get a job and sustain himself for the rest of his life. Uh, <laughs> after leaving our home. So again, it's great to be here. Um, if you're like me, you have uh, hopefully been enjoying some of the Olympics um, from however you say it, Pyeongchang, Pyeongchang, South Korea. I love the Olympics, summer games, winter games, it doesn't matter. Uh, I love the pageantry, love the, the competition, the different sporting events. I love it also because it really, sort of unlike anything else I can think of, right, it brings the world together uh, for this special moment in time, moment of the year, uh, for friendly competition. Um, along with that, like this year, something has captured the world's attention. If you have been following uh, news cycles, you know there's been a surprising turn of events. The host nation, South Korea, did something unthinkable. And they invited North Korea to participate in the Olympics and even more to play a significant role um, in the ceremonies and even to be part of their team in different ways. And it had just been a few months before, right, that the uh, South Korean president had been trying to, to keep at bay any sort of disaster, nuclear disaster, between the United States and North Korea. And so now in the opening ceremony, South Korea and North Korea march in together, parade in together under a united flag. There were some in South Korea that supported this decision. They were excited about it, saw this maybe as a kind of olive branch that could bring peace to the Korean Peninsula in ways that hadn't been experienced in maybe 50 years. Uh, there were others that were a little bit conflicted, right? They saw the potential benefits, um, but they were also worried that uh, the North might use this as a chance to uh, lull the South into sleep uh, for their political ambitions, the North's political ambitions. And still others were angry. Right? There were people upset about this invitation that had been extended. There were even protests in the streets of Seoul. People blamed the South Korean government for spending money to host and welcome North Korean athletes. But I think the biggest shock for me anyway, is that South Korea made room for 12 female North Korean hockey players to join the South Korean women's hockey team. And what that meant was that some of the South Korean female players couldn't play. They lost their spot. They lost their chance to play. And there were some people in South Korea that had a deep sense that this is not fair, but I can't help but to be moved at what those 12 women from North Korea might have felt and might have thought. They had been uninvited initially. They were outsiders. 
They were despised, at least in terms of their connection to the country. But now they have been brought in by the host country. And some have real hopes for lasting peace, right? Maybe the Olympic spirit will have the power to change the way the North and the, sea, and the South see each other. Maybe this year's torch will change the course of history. And I think only time will tell. Well, just like South Korea shocked the world and turned expectations and the established order on its head, so Jesus in the Gospels, he's always doing something similar. He's teaching and doing things that shock people. He upsets the apple, cor- the apple cart. He turns it over. And he leaves some people hopeful. He leaves other people wondering. And he leaves other people furious. His popularity has been growing among the crowds, but suspicion has also been growing among the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And so in our text this morning, we're going to find Jesus at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus has been invited to dinner. He's a guest. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you know that meals are a really important time. It was a regular and significant part of life, sadly far more important than meals often are in our culture today. There were rich traditions of hospitality. There were greetings. There were washing up rituals. There were special seating arrangements and so on. There was the expectation to honor guests and always the potential danger of causing shame by failing to do that well. Luke records a scene for us here where the dinner doesn't exactly go down the way it's supposed to. Jesus, the invited guest, gets snubbed. An uninvited woman creates a scandal. Jesus turns and accuses the host of his inhospitality. And the host and other guests lash out at Jesus for how he turns everything that night on its head. They're restless and they're angry at him because he has exposed their hearts as being empty of love. So let's take a minute and let's look together at Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him and his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, I pray that you might now meet us wherever we are. If we are in a place where we are encouraged and excited to be here, if we are in a place where we are bored and and apathetic, the gospel has lost its luster, we might feel distant from you. Lord, if we're in a place that is hard, where we are weary and feel overwhelmed, wherever we are, Lord, I ask that you, by your spirit, would meet us and uh, encourage us. Father, in the areas of our hearts and lives where we need to be wounded by your word, I pray that you might gently do that this morning. But please don't leave us there. Please heal us. Please bind us up. Uh, Please change us and bring us closer to yourself. I pray ultimately that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning, that you would fill our hearts full of hope so that we might go out from this place and that the world would be changed as a result. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to put it simply, uh, this well-known narrative is about love. Some of you may know the author Jamie Smith. In his book, You Are What You Love, uh, Smith makes a compelling argument that we are not, as human beings, we are not fundamentally thinkers, but we are lovers. Of course we think, and of course our thoughts influence the decisions that we make and how we live, but at our core, Each one of us has been created to love God. So it's not a question of whether we love, but really it's a question of what we love or whom we love. Something has captured every one of our hearts. And whatever that is, it is shaping how we live our lives, often subconsciously. Loving is what we do because that is who we are. But the problem we have, right, with our hearts is that they are always leading us astray, either by loving the wrong things or often by loving the right things too much. And we're going to see that in how Simon relates to God. And we're going to see that in how he relates to people. But Simon's struggle is also your struggle, and it is my struggle. Because no matter how good we try to be, no matter how seriously we, we might take Jesus' command to love God, and to love our neighbor. We will never become people who love well until we are changed from the inside out by the love of God. A God who shows radical hospitality. A God who has literally loved us to death. That's the gospel. And it is this message of forgiving love that changed the sinful woman's life in our passage. And when that same message of grace breaks into our hearts, it will will also change us too. So this morning, the simple idea that I'd like to leave you with is that the gospel changes everything about the way we love. 
The gospel changes everything about the way we love. So I want us to look together at what happens at night at dinner. I want to focus in on the characters of Simon and the sinful woman. Because what I believe we'll see as we look at the person of Simon is where faith in self always leaves us. And it leaves us emptied of love. And then as we consider this unnamed woman, I believe we'll discover where faith in Jesus always leaves us. And it leaves us full of love. So let's look first at faith in self and how it leaves us emptied of love. Well, Simon is the the host in our story, and there's an aroma, not just in the house because of the food that's being cooked. There's an aroma about Simon where the closer you get to him, the more your stomach begins to turn. He's heard about Jesus. Likely he's even seen Jesus' ministry in action. In Luke chapter 5, we're told that Jesus has already earned the reputation for eating and drinking with sinners. And so it appears that Simon, a Pharisee, has set up this opportunity to test Jesus to see if he is truly orthodox, right? He invites him to dinner, almost for sure with the intention of getting Jesus to do or to say something that could be used to discredit him among the masses who become fascinated with Jesus. Well, Simon makes it clear, right? You don't even have to dissect the text carefully. Simon makes it clear from the, from the time Jesus enters his home that even though Jesus was invited, he was not a welcomed guest. He deliberately skips over all of the hospitality gestures that every host would have known to engage in. In verse 44, Jesus points out that Simon didn't provide water to clean Jesus' feet with. He didn't greet him with the customary kiss. He didn't anoint his head with oil. And what makes this unconscionable for Simon is that he has acknowledged Jesus, or he will acknowledge Jesus that night as a teacher, meaning that he's even more worthy of respect than a normal guest. So everyone there that night would have been shocked by Simon's rudeness. If you had been there, you would have been able to cut the tension in that room with a knife. And it's at this point that Luke tells us that there's someone else in Simon's house that night. Someone else besides Simon and Jesus and Simon's friends. There's a woman of the city who was a sinner. Verse 37 tells us this. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's home, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. You guys probably know this woman was most likely a prostitute. Luke describes her as a sinner. And even Jesus refers to her sins as being many and as her debt before God as being great because of the choices that she'd made. What kind of a woman she is is no secret. But what she does in response to Simon's rudeness would have seemed scandalous and it clearly infuriates Simon. She had been in the house waiting for Jesus That fact doesn't come through very clearly in the English, but she is already there when he arrives. She'd either heard of his message of grace in person or she'd heard about this man of God who had come, who was willing and able to have mercy on even the worst sinner like her. 
And as she witnesses Jesus being snubbed by the host, she is moved in her heart with compassion. And she takes advantage of this chance, this opportunity to then wash his feet with her tears. She doesn't have a towel, so she lets her hair down. And she dries his feet with her hair. And then she anoints his feet with some of the perfume that she's brought. And we may not fully appreciate it, but it is hard to exaggerate how offensive this would have been to Simon and to his guests and how potentially embarrassing it would have been for Jesus. In the Middle Eastern culture of that day, a woman never let her hair down in public. It was seen as sexually provocative. If she did let her hair down, like the woman does in Simon's home, according to the oral tradition of first century Judaism, her husband had the right to divorce her. In fact, many considered it his religious duty. Simon doesn't love this woman because he doesn't have to love her. She is not worthy of being loved by him or by God. In verse 39, we're told that he, Simon, said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. Isn't it easy for you and I, especially if we are Christians, we have high moral standards for ourselves and others, isn't it easy to dismiss or even despise people that have made bad choices because their hearts have led them to love other things more than God? So who are the people that you would rather not love because you don't think they are worth your time or worthy of God's mercy? What vibe, what aroma do you give off? Is it one that communicates shame and distance to those who desperately need healing and salvation? Uh, I was aware of my own struggle with this just several days ago on the University of Tennessee campus. I was at my favorite coffee shop, uh, I was working on, I'm sure, something ministry-related, right, doing God's work, and three or four homeless people came up one at a time over the course of my time there asking for money, and to be honest, I found it hard not to say no before I even allowed them to get the question out of their mouth. The person making my drink that day seemed to be struggling with his sexual orientation, and I noticed myself getting irritated over that. And then there was my Chinese friend who I saw at the table in the corner. She's getting her PhD in philosophy. I've known her for years. We've had many great conversations about the gospel. But I was busy. And honestly, I didn't feel like I had time to even say hello. I, I wanted to ignore her. But I was polite. I said hello. I uh, sat down a couple of minutes later. And I found myself thinking about how stubborn she was because she's too sophisticated to follow Jesus, and to put her faith in him. And I have to confess that I'm pretty sure none of those people that I encountered that day would have been drawn to the Savior on account of me. They wouldn't have gotten the picture from me of a God who welcomes sinners. The fact is that we can't have real love for people when we don't have real love for God. So think about Simon again. Simon's real problem is not how he treats the woman. His real problem, his fundamental problem, is that he believes at the core he is different from this sinful woman when they both stand before the law of God. He has no problem condemning her for the life that she has led. 
And he has no problem commending himself for the life that he has led. He's a Pharisee. He's someone who took religion seriously and didn't get paid for it. He had devoted his life to studying and following the minute details of the Torah. Simon might never have actually said that he could earn God's forgiveness, but functionally he was trusting in himself, in his own goodness, to gain and to maintain favor with God. Tim Keller says this, he says, Most people in the world believe that if there's a God, you can relate to him by being good. Some religions are what you might call nationalistic. You connect to God, they say, by coming into our people group and taking on the markers of society membership. Other religions are spiritualistic. You reach God by working your way through certain transformations of consciousness. Yet other religions are legalistic. There's a code of conduct. And if you follow it, God will look upon you with favor. But they all have the same logic. If I perform, if I obey, then I'm accepted. I like this well-known analogy of someone trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. I'm sure you've heard it, right? If we try to get God to accept us, accept us based on how well we love him, on how good we try to be, uh, it's like thinking that we can cross the Grand Canyon by running fast enough and jumping far enough. The only problem is the Grand Canyon, on average, is about nine miles from rim to rim. So it really doesn't matter, right, if we jump five feet or 50 feet, we're going to fall short. And the end result is always the same. It's self-destruction. Keller again sums it up well when he says, the gospel of Jesus is not only different from that, from whatever strategies we might try to rely on to get God's love, but the gospel is diametrically opposed to those strategies because the gospel says, I am fully accepted in Christ and therefore I obey. And we can begin to see that Simon's love for God was empty because it was rooted in self, in self-trust. And his love for people was also empty because he was always comparing himself to them, either judging them or talking even internally, about how much better he was than them, instead of giving himself away to them. And just like Simon, the only way that you and I will be able to love God from the heart and love other people is to know, to really know in the depths of our soul, how much we're forgiven and cherished by God. And it is when we live in light of the freedom that Jesus' perfect life and death has brought us, that is when our own emptiness begins to be filled and we discover a power inside of us that enables us to love. So we've seen in the person of Simon how faith in self leaves us emptied of love, love for others and love for God. And now I want us to step back into the story for a minute and take a closer look at this woman and we're going to see how faith in Jesus actually empowers us to love instead of leaving us empty. I think it's a beautiful portrait. This woman is a beautiful portrait of a heart that has been captivated and changed by the love of Jesus. She is full of love for God and full of love for people. I remember the summer of 1996, um, I was a new student um, in Philadelphia at seminary. I had packed up, 
I had said goodbye to my parents, to my family, uh, rest of my family, my friends. Uh, moving up north, I felt like I had moved to a foreign country. No offense to those of you who are northerners, but a little bit different from the south, at least Knoxville. I was tough leaving Jennifer, my wife. We've been married 20 years now, but back then it had only been a couple of months since we had started dating. Uh, I enrolled in summer Greek and uh, kind of embraced the challenge, studied hard. My brain definitely hurt. Uh, I enjoyed making friends, but I grew lonely pretty quickly, and I missed Jennifer like crazy. Uh, FaceTime didn't exist back then. That might have been helpful. Maybe not enough, but it would have helped. But I found out um, that summer, pretty early on, that a friend of mine, a classmate, was going to Florida, and he'd be driving through Knoxville. He was leaving the next day. So I had this amazing idea. I called my best friend who lived in Knoxville and uh, talked him into driving me back to Philadelphia if I could get a ride down to Knoxville. So I left on Thursday morning, uh, early in the morning, about 7 a.m., but I had to be back within 24 hours because I had a Greek exam the next day at 8 a.m. So I spent 22 hours in the car in order to spend two hours with Jennifer. And so why in the world would somebody, would somebody do that? Well, it's obvious. I was in love, right? That's what you do when you're in love. I was willing to lose sleep. I was willing to potentially get fired from my job. I told my boss I couldn't make my shift the next day. I was even willing to maybe fail my Greek exam for not studying enough, or if we got stuck in traffic or blew a tire, I wouldn't even be there for the exam. But love had grabbed hold of my heart and it had changed me. I was willing to give up all I had. And this woman in Luke 7 is, will, is willing to give up everything because of the love that she's heard about in the person of Jesus and the love that she's now begun to experience in his presence. She herself has become full of love for God, and she looks for an opportunity to express her gratitude and faith. That's why she went to the home of Simon the Pharisee. That's why she used her expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. And that's why she let her hair down to honor Jesus by washing and drying his feet. Of course she knew what everyone in that house would be thinking and saying. But it didn't matter anymore. She had nothing to lose because she no longer had anything worth holding on to. But Jesus gave her everything, his welcome, his acceptance, his power to change, and his perfect love that could never be lost. Some commentators have actually suggested that she went to Simon's home in order to obtain forgiveness, in order to prove her devotion to Jesus and her worthiness. And it is true that when Jesus tells her in verses 48 and 49, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's true that he makes that statement after she's shown her love for him and after she's risked public humiliation. But if there were any questions about her motivation, Jesus puts those to rest with this little parable he tells in the middle of the passage. This four-sentence parable in verses 41 to 42 is simple, but utterly profound. Basically, there's two people in the story. They both owed money. One owed a little, 
a month and a half worth of wages, the other owed a lot, 10 times more, a year and a half worth of wages or so. And the money lender, right, instead of punishing both of them for not being able to pay back their debt, he cancels the debt. He forgives the debt of both of them. And so Jesus tosses Simon a softball when he asks him which of these two people in the story would have been more full of love. And Simon's forced to admit that, of course, it's the person that had the greater debt forgiven. That person would have experienced incredible relief. That person would have experienced life-restoring freedom. Both Simon and the woman, they can find their place in Jesus' parable. They each know who he's talking about. And Jesus sums up her expression of love for him with these words in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Another way to put it is, she loved much because her many sins have been forgiven. And when you and I have felt our need for radical forgiveness, and when we have begun to grasp just how radical God's love is, not for those sinners, but for sinners like you and me, that's when we will want to show Jesus our gratitude and love him with our life. It's not because we have to. It's because we get to. The gospel changes why we do what we do as Christians. We obey, yes, but our obedience flows out of gladness. And we won't ever love God perfectly in this life. We are works in progress, and the construction zone can often look like a mess. But this woman's life, she didn't have it all together either. She is a great example in this passage of a transformed life. But she would go on, right, to struggle as a Christian just like you and I struggle. The difference, though, the difference between her and Simon is that Simon is struggling to find freedom, and this woman has found it, and therefore she is free to struggle. And one way that we begin to express our love for God as Christians throughout our Christian life is by loving the people that he loves. He's committed to taking us from being empty of love to being full of love. The love for others has always been a distinguishing mark of the church, right? It's a fundamental character quality of God's people. And it's not that those outside the church have no ability uh, to show kindness or even make admirable sacrifices for others. I'm blessed to know many people, people who are atheists and Buddhists, Muslims and Hindus, who are wonderful people. And sometimes it seems like they put Christians to shame by their kindness, by their loyalty, by their hospitality. But the Bible teaches clearly, for example, in Hebrews 11:6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And as we've seen already this morning, we won't truly love God and we won't truly love people for the right reasons until we first received the saving and healing love of God in Christ. But when we do, and as we continue to drink in this love every day, it will change the way we relate to people. We won't have to compare ourselves to others any longer. 
and either shy away from them, from them because we're insecure or shun them because we think that we're better than them. We can move towards those who struggle with laziness or those who have a hard time pushing their work away. We can sympathize with those who tend to overeat or with those who obsess about being fit. When we notice parents scolding their kids or parents letting their kids run wild, we'll not need to judge them. And even when we see open rebellion, people shamelessly plunging into attitudes and decisions that God doesn't condone, we will remember this. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and you are what you are. What that means is the only thing that has raised us up to a new life, the only thing that has produced anything good in you and I, you and me, is the grace of God. And so there's no room for us to boast. And Jesus fills us to enter into the lives of others with words of gospel hope and actions of gospel love. He will lead us to love others in ways that sometimes is costly, ways that might require our time or our money, our emotional energy or our practical help. But in all of these ways, we get the chance to reflect the hospitality of God to others. God made room for us when we were outsiders, and he wants us to make room for others in their needs. And if you're like me, you're going to be tempted to only love others that you're attracted to, to those who require little investment, to those who might even be able to return the favor in some way. But Christine Pohl in her book, Making Room, she reminds us that embracing those that, might naturally, that we might naturally see as undesirable and undeserving, especially embracing outsiders, actually authenticates the gospel for them. And so our efforts to show love and hospitality bear witness to God's deep passion to make strangers into friends and even into family. One of the most memorable uh, opportunities that I have had uh, working with international students uh, at the University of Tennessee happened about five years ago. Uh, I was at Panera on what we call the Strip. That's kind of the main thoroughfare through campus in Knoxville. And was leading a conversational English class. And probably eight to ten international friends were there. And uh, this one guy, Chinese guy, he and his girlfriend showed up. And they had not been to the class. It was actually towards the end of the semester. And so I knew that he was not there for English. I knew that he had another reason to be there. And uh, Carl and his girlfriend um, came up to me after uh, the class was over. And Carl said, uh, Lee, um, I'm in trouble. Uh, I need your help. I actually need legal counsel. And so he began to tell me about his problem. It's one of my favorite stories, actually. Um, his mother had been visiting from China and was there for six months, and she went by herself for the first time to the grocery store, Kroger. We have Kroger in Knoxville. I don't know if you have Kroger around here. But she did what she would have done normally in China. She brought her bag from home. She walked into the grocery store, began to put things, items that she needed, into her bag, and then walked out the entrance, because she didn't know there were two different ones, walked out the entrance into the 
where the grocery carts are, because in China, that is apparently where you pay uh, for your groceries. Well, she just made it to the door, uh, right? And security was all over her. And so they whisked her to uh, customer service to speak to the manager. He began asking her question after question. She didn't speak any English at all. And at some point, the manager picked up the phone and that translated into, he's calling the police. She took all the stuff out of her bag, which I think only came to like nine or $10. She took $60 out of, her, out of her purse, put it on the table and literally ran out the door. She was circling the parking lot. She finally went into Starbucks because she didn't know what else to do. The policeman came, put her in handcuffs and took her to the station. And somehow they were able to get in touch with her son, my friend Carl, and uh, so she got out. But anyway, there, there are these charges hanging over her. And he was scared not just for her, but for his own future as a PhD student. How might this reflect poorly on his record? Could it affect his visa status? And so he came looking for help. And so was so grateful that he trusted us, that he knew that he could call us. We're not legal experts, but I was able to find a lawyer. I went with him and his mom. We talked through what had happened, uh, was able to go to the hearing and stand with Carl and his mom before the judge and translate in some sort of way to try to make sure that the judge understood. Judge dismissed the charge, put her on probation until she went back uh, to China. And so Carl, when he finished up his PhD, which wasn't long after that, he went back to China. He sent me this big box of tea. And that box of tea is missing, and I think I know why. I Googled it, and if I Google correctly, this tea probably could finance the college education for at least one of my four children. Um, it was like $1,400 an ounce or something like that. So, but Carl was grateful, right? And I was full of joy because I had the chance to share the love of God with someone who doesn't even believe in God. Uh, yesterday, I heard from Carl. He's been gone five years, but he actually told me he's going to be in town in the next couple of weeks. So I'm hopeful to get to see him, and I'm praying for a chance just to connect with him again. Loving people, showing hospitality, welcoming others can take so many different shapes. It does not have to mean you preparing a five-course meal to entertain guests. It might look like being a conversation partner for an immigrant wanting to learn English or improve their English. Perhaps you'll have the chance to invite an international student into your home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or another special time. It could be sitting down and actually sharing a cup of coffee with a homeless person instead of wishing they would go away. Maybe it's finally including that difficult family member in your next family get-together. It could be telling someone that they're welcome to join you here on Sunday morning, or even finding ways to serve the community with no strings attached. It's all about making room, making room in our hearts, making room in our lives, because Jesus has made room for us and continues to make room. I want to close our time by reading the first verse of one of my favorite hymns by John Newton, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Newton writes this, Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. 
He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh or near to God. This is the kind of song that the sinful woman in Luke 7 would have found herself singing. This is the kind of song that Simon the Pharisee so desperately needed to be able to sing because this is the song of the gospel. And this song about God's love for sinners, a love that cost him everything, it reminds us that the gospel really does change everything for us and changes everything about the way that we love. We are no longer empty because Jesus will continue to pour his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit so that we can be empowered, not just to love God, but to love others freely and fully, even though it will never be perfect this side of heaven. Let's pray together. God, we thank you.